Now this here's a story about the Rock Island Line. Now Rock Island Line, she runs down into New Orleans. And just outside of New Orleans, there's a big toll gate. And all the trains, they go through the toll gate while they, they gotta pay the man some money. But of course, if you got certain things on board, you're okay, you don't have to pay the man nothing. And just now, we see a train, she coming down the line. And when she come up near the toll gate, the driver, he shout down to the man. He say, I got pigs, I got horses, I got cows, I got sheep, I got all livestock, I got all livestock, I got all livestock. And the man say, well, you all right, boy, just get on through. You don't have to pay me nothing. And the train go through. And when he go through the toll gate, the train get up a little bit of steam and a little bit of speed. And when the driver think he's safely on the other side, he shout back down the line to the man. He said, I fooled you, I fooled you. I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got oh pig iron. Now I'll tell you where I'm going, boy. Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island line. I may be right, may be wrong. You know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island line. Lord, come here for to see me again hey. Down the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road The Rock Island Line is the road to ride Yeah, the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road And if you won't You got to ride it like you find to Get your ticket at the station On the Rock Island Line A, B, C, W, X, Y, Z Cats on the cover but he don't see me Down the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road The Rock Island Line is the road to ride Yeah, the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road And if you won't Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Lonnie Donegan and Rock Island Line, way back from 1955. It's because I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Mo Foster here, who's written a fabulous book, British Rock Guitar, the, the First 50 Years. But not only that, he's had a wonderful career in the music industry with so many great artists that we'll hear today playing bass. But anyway, a huge welcome, Mo. Hi, it's good, it's good fun to be here. Great. Fantastic. And I was reading that when you were first writing British Rock Guitar, so when you were thinking about the idea for British Rock Guitar, was this sort of idea to capture the the history and, and thoughts and background, and especially as you've got an, an inside track in the industry? It was all because of stories. Musicians love stories. They tell them the, it's the stuff of long journeys. It's the stuff of gaps in sessions. And uh, it's, it's we self-entertain. Every now and then there'd be a, or you're sitting in a pub telling stories. Someone would say, we should write this down. Of course, no one ever did. But very slowly I began realizing I was, I was remembering them. And uh, that was the start of uh, putting them down. Sadly, a number of the people that you spoke with are, are not here today. So it's even more important oh, yeah. in hindsight that you've collected that. Well, the real sad news is I just went through a book and 70, that's seven of my friends that have died. People I want to ring up and have a chat to, and they're not there. It's it's not good. 
I picked up a great phrase from a historian. He said, um, when someone dies, it's as though a library is burning down. That's it, all that knowledge, you know, it's gone, unless you capture it. And we opened up with Lonnie Donegan, and so you you met Lonnie and captured memories? I didn't meet him. I, I was hunting for him and asked a few people. I, I think Bruce Wells in the shadows finally gave me a connection. And he was living in Malaga in southern Spain. And I got through to him, and he, he got very confusing because he thought I was the tax man. <laughs> we had a weird start. And then he didn't want to do internet chats like this. It, it ended up with me sending him a cassette of questions, and then he would send a cassette back of answers, and it was up to me to join them up. The really interesting thing, looking back, is that you've got a British slant on things, and obviously the era in the 1950s, we were getting over the, the Second World War, rationing was kind of ending or towards the end of ending and then there was sorts of import restrictions on, on what you got across so when it comes to sort of getting instruments and, and that kind of thing especially where they were made in the US that was quite tricky. Well the, the key year is 1960 and that was the end of the post-war American trade embargo before that you couldn't buy anything American and for us that meant Fenders Gibsons and whatever impossible the players at the time had to get what they could, which was terrible bits of plywood from Czechoslovakia and Russia and actions that but like suspension bridges. It was, it was not easy. It's amazing that any rock and roll came out of Britain at that time. And then 1960, there was a floodgate, and suddenly you get all these incredible instruments. We'd seen the Fender Stratocaster on a Buddy Holly album, and everybody wondered what it was, because it looked like a, a spaceship. It was so different. Now everybody's got one. One of the first great British rock and roll singles was Move It, yeah. Cliff Richard. And I think it was even mapped at the time as the Drifters, because obviously there was a name change because there was a, a US Drifters, that, the Shadows. Um, so you had contact with the writer of that, Ian Samwell? Yeah, I knew him. I had dinner with him. He told me the whole story, how it came about. He rode it on a bus coming down from Cheshunt. And the Drifters was Cliff and this guy, Ian Samwell plus Ernie Shear, a session guy on guitar, not Hank, an upright bass player called Frank Clark. And so it's just like a session, really. But they, they did it very well, and it became a landmark record. Um, in 2006, I got a call from Cliff's office. He wanted to remake Move It, but in a kind of more swampy way. I don't know what that meant. So we assembled at Abbey Road on the same spot as that original record. And I was on bass. Brian Bennett, drummer of the Shadows of Long Kit. And Brian Manny was on, on guitar. He was done with the Echo lead breaks. Except that he, he was an hour late. And um, we all wondered where he was. Finally, he turned up looking a bit tired and hair in disarray. He apologised and explained. And he came out with an excuse for being late, that you cannot beat this. He said, I'm so sorry. I've been up all night with proof reading a book I've co-written with Patrick Moore on the history of the universe. Come on. It's a bit better than the fan belt broke, isn't it? Heart and soul. Let me tell you, people, it's called rock and 
back to the uh, point around the evolution of things and then the interrelation between uh, the US and the UK. Obviously, you were growing up in this period and obviously getting into music. And when was it you first got your bass guitar? Because obviously before then, it was things like the tea chest and other things. Or, or was you a guitarist first? No, I was a violinist. <laughs> oh. That's a very good one. All of this passed me by until I saw a school friend one day playing guitar. And it was like a revelation that, you know, humans could do this, not just people miles away. I was in a little village in Staffordshire, so I was miles of anything. And uh, I got a cheap old acoustic. And then it ended up with too many acoustic guitars in this little band. It was slightly post-skiffle, so we were trying to do early rock, but not very well. And I'd heard this phrase, bass guitar. I didn't know what it looked like or what it did, really. So what led you to, uh, was it you played drums in Affinity then? No, I'd gone back to bass then. Right. I wanted to do, but I'd like to study music. But at the time, there were no colleges that did electric instruments, like there are now, remains now. And so I was doing science at school. So I, I went to the University of Sussex and did physics. And that seemed to make sense. While I was there, I met lots of other musicians. But they nobody wanted a bass. They'd already got them. But I spotted a, a slot for a, for a drummer in a jazz trio and um, borrowed some money and got a little white premier kit. Very quickly learned just enough to get by, you know, no, no, mm. no solos. And I was a drummer for three years. So it was fascinating. It helped me a lot. It made me think I can, I could think how drummers think. Then when we finished, several of us wanted to form a real band, Divinity, jazz rock thing. And I went back to bass guitar, simple as that. And there's a great album live at Ronnie Scott's that's on Angel Air and great version of A Day in the Life, which is oh, yeah. so well recorded um, and is a real sort of time capsule. You had, um, and the group had strong links with Ronnie Scott, didn't you? He was our manager for two and a half years. We, I lived at the club. I slept in the club for one week. He just, it, it was a different time and jazz rock was happening because of parallel bands like Miles Davis and Coliseum. Earth, and Fire. We were part of that period. I've got to tell you, thank you for saying that was well recorded. Now, how it was recorded? No. Well, my dad and I had built a big tape recorder, so I couldn't buy one. So I've got some various bits and pieces. He did the carpentry, 
and it, it was about that long. It was heavy. And I started recording things at school, recording school stuff and at college. And when we did this gig at Ronnie's, we were supporting Stan Gates. I persuaded the sound man at the, at the back that it would be a good idea if I squeezed this into his booth. I think I gave him a couple of quid or something. It, recording at seven and a half, we recorded the entire evening on this big old tape machine. And it, it was years later I was able to remaster it and get some trouble back. The fact that you thought it was sounded good is amazing. It was, it was just mono. Amazing. Who's that on stage at the end talking about the rest of the evening then? That's Ronnie Scott. Wow. He used to do, a, he was legendary for his stand-up routine. He was a very funny man. And on that night, I think he said, uh, what, said the audience, what have you been drinking? Concrete? Something like that. I learned a lot about music, a lot of jazz in that club, and a lot about humour. It was great.
the affinity, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for the affinity. You've been a wonderful audience, and uh, we're particularly impressed by the way some of you are controlling yourselves. <laughs> uh, in just a few moments, we'd like to bring on to the van Stan, Stan Getz and his quartet. And we'd also like to remind you that we're open until 3 o'clock in the morning and that you can eat and drink up until then. And we very much hope that you do. For Christ's sake. After affinity, you were a bit of a, a loss in terms of what you do next? <laughs> yes. It's because there are two things. There's music where you know players and so on. And then there's the industry. And I hadn't learned a damn thing about the industry. I didn't know who you spoke to or how it worked. I put a little advert in Melody Maker, and there was always a, a set of columns at the back for gigs. You, you could advertise yourself or whatever engagements wanted. And I put a little ad in, and uh, I only put it in one week, and, but a bit of magic happened in that there was a guy, a producer, who was working with the singer uh, Michael Darbo, who had been in the Manfreds. He was looking for musicians, and he called me up and, and Henry Spinetti on drums. And we did a little, little audition, and uh, that was the start. But through Getting your name around, I, I, I sort of filtered into, into the session scene, about which I knew nothing until I started doing it. And there's a, a great story that you tell about, I don't know if it was your, your first time as a, a session artist, because we next got Barry Ryan, can't let you go. You're turning up for the first time to do a session? That was it. That was the first session. I, a bass player, I think it was Rod Denick, dropped out. <laughs> and my name came up somehow. I was called to do this thing. I was terrified because I... First of all, I couldn't read music. We followed a chord chart. I didn't know how he did anything. So I, I took a flask of coffee and some sandwiches, which the other guys thought was hysterical. I got through it. It was all right. But the joy was the people I met there. There was Clem Cattini on drums, Ray Fennick on guitar. Sadly, he died last month. And uh, Ray Cooper on percussion. I'd never worked with a percussionist before. This was a treat. And Mike Brown on piano. And they were funny. And I suddenly felt totally at home. This is... This is where I should have been all this time. The back end of British rock guitar shares the story of the session scene, which is now not really in the same shape it was 30 years ago. For, for a very special reason, that, well, a couple of reasons, one of which there was, lot, there was budget, the record companies had budget. Slowly they didn't, and what happened was the studios disappeared. At the peak of working, and we did three sessions a day, there were about 94 studios all over town. Now there's five. The big ones, and so that doesn't that can't sustain a career for anybody. So uh, we're all doing different things, and of course you do it like this. You know, you send files to each other now, but the jokes aren't the same.
Then it seems as we embarked in the 70s, you were able to play a lot. And, and I spoke to Mike Hurst relatively recently because it was fancy, a session band, but actually that led into a tour and, and something more as well. Well, it was Mike's idea. He wanted to do a kind of sensual version of Wild Thing, the Trog Sid. And he got me and Ray in and, and uh, Henry Spinetti, I think, to play this basic track. And then he brought in a, a, a singer. I used the word loosely. She was a penthouse pet who looked great, but no way could she sing. And she just breathed the words, which is what, what Mike wanted. And uh, we thought no more about it until it entered the charts in America. And we thought, well, we've got to, got to do something with this. So we formed a little band and toured. went all over. And we had a terrific time, just for a year or so. You know, that was all. But it was good fun. We did tour with this penthouse pet. We got a proper singer called Annie. <laughs> <laughs> So next we have Roger Glover and David Coverdale on vocals uh, uh, from The Butterfly Ball and The Grasshopper's Feast, which uh, was a, an album as, as well as a, a live show and film. And how did you get involved with uh, Roger? Through Ray Fennick and Eddie Harding, who I've been working with. The whole scene was word of mouth. And that was it, really. So I got to, uh, Roger seemed to like what I was doing. So he was happy to sit behind the desk and let me do the stuff. Lovely bunch of pe- people, good players. From that, the album was good. It, it was based on Alan Aldridge's uh, book of drawings. And Roger's a terrific composer. He came up with some lovely tunes. And it was decided to promote it by doing a concert, a charity concert at the Albert Hall. And a lot of extra guests on lots of the Deep Purple guys were there. I think it was Dave Coverdale's first gig, just about. Wow. Good fun. And it was filmed. And here it went wrong because the director was a twat. <laughs> And instead of using the, the full video of the concert, he kept cutting in terrible scenes of bad actors in bad rabbit costume dancing along the heath. And 
something like a third of the film is, is just rubbish. And Roger was furious he, he walked out of this uh, the promotion. So it's sad that something so good ended up bad because of one man. So how, how was it uh, playing playing that live at, at the Albert Hall as opposed to in, in the studio? Well, live was, was just lovely because of the sound and the people. And we'd done the work. We'd invented the parts. One of the things about studio players is you don't just read something. You give them a bit of a chart, and it's up to you to invent the part and invent the lines. And by listening to each other, that was one of the reasons some of the songs in that period were so good, is because there's five people playing together, doing a five-way interaction, listening. And you can't do that with uh, going backwards and forwards, using logic or whatever. You'll get an approximation of it, but that feedback doesn't happen. Association with his Jay Rafferty and we've next got Night Owl and, and the Night Owl album that was the first album that you played with Jerry on is that right? Yes I came in after City to City he had a problem with some of the musicians I can't I don't know what it was there was, there was a bit of hiring and firing and I was one of the ones that came in and I did that I think I did another six or seven albums after that but Night Owl is, is just perfect. It's a wonderful project. And what was it like working with Jerry? I loved it. That one was, was done at uh, a studio called Chippy Norton in the Cotswolds. It was one of the residential studios, so you own a little bedroom. There was a big room where you ate breakfast together and an evening meal. So it was very social. You know, you're there for two weeks. And you'd play each song. You'd start working, at a, uh, working up the part. You'd write your own charts. You'd just play a bit on piano. It's up to you to figure out what the chords were. And then he'd play it for getting on for 12 hours over and over until it was just what he wanted. It was good. It's very good. Good sounds. Good songs, aren't they? On that. You continued to play with Jerry until he passed? Yes, I did. That was a whole album. We did another album at a studio called Air, Air Montserrat in the Caribbean. It was George's studio. That was pretty good, except there were problems with the studio. It, was, it wasn't working properly at the time. There were power supply problems on the island. 
But it was a gorgeous place, and we did to get some good tracks out of it. And then I did a few more albums, but not whole albums, just three or four right. tracks and that kind of thing. One excellent one was, um, oh, I don't know what it's called. Again, Chipping Norton. It was just me and him just oh. working out the part. And then he'd add stuff, layers of stuff afterwards. But I was working out what the baseline should be. And he was, the man's brilliant. Mm. And that, that voice to stand next to it is such a treat.
you played with Jeff Beck and uh, their and back album and there's a ah and you've got a poster behind you <laughs> that's the Japanese tour poster yeah. yeah so how did that association come about well as I said earlier it's often word of mouth this this uh, whole scene and I've done a lot of work with a drummer called Simon Phillips do, do you know the name then yeah he's gone to work with Toto and all kinds of people and um, he and Tony Hymas the keyboard player had worked with Jack Bruce they had a band Jack Bruce which disbanded at the time that Jeff was looking for people and so they, they teamed up with Stanley Clark on bass and that didn't work so they, my name came up and uh, that's it you have a little sort of audition if it works you're in <laughs> it's really interesting hearing about the different recording techniques that artists have and Space Boogie was a another example of a, a different recording process wasn't it well I'll tell you what happened. What that was. Simon and Tony had written it. It's a very fast piece in several different time signatures. It's mostly in seven four, then the bits in six and so on. I was in this in the control room of Abbey Road Studio Two. They put the basic track down. The part that Tony had written was so long. We put three music sounds together and sort of taped it all across. So we thought the room. And I was sort of hovering along it as, as we as we uh, did it. I said later I could have done the trolley. That would have been nice. It was very hard to understand what was going on, but once I've got it, it just clicked, and it's a, it's a fantastic track. When we did it live, we went on tour, and playing that same tune in a big room was fantastic. The energy. Lots of double bass drums. What's this about a, an issue with a plane? I've read an interview where you were on tour with Jeff Beck and there was plane problems. Is that right? Yes. We are coming in to land at Burbank, California, and it was a twin-engine plane. And the, the owner was with the pilot, and it, he was, for some reason, he kept checking one engine, he kept stalling one engine and starting it again. And then suddenly we saw an or- orange glow under the wing, and it caught fire. And it's never fun on our twin engine planes, and one engine's on fire. And he landed very quickly. The kind of landing like this did, didn't glide, it plummeted. We got down very quickly and banged on the tarmac. And what was amazing about it was that um, the door is at the back of these planes and the pilot was the first guy out, coward. And the last person out was a guy called Ernest Chapman, who's Jeff's manager. And I asked him afterwards, why did you wait? And he said, I'm the oldest. I thought that was really considerate of him to shepherd us out and then come out himself.
And one of the previous podcast guests that I've had on is John Altman, amazing arranger. But there's a, the connection there in, in relation to the Secret Policeman's concert that you featured on. Many connections. I was at university with him down at Sussex. Yes, he was. He was. He was the sort of MD of the, of the concert. I was there with Simon because Jeff was there. Oh, yes. There is a piece that John's mentioned in his book. There was no rehearsal. We just turned up, and while the comedians are doing their act out in front of the curtain. We're up in a little dressing room up some stone steps, just discussing what we're going to play. So it's all head arrangements. And there was a guy standing near the door that after a few minutes we said what we're going to do. And I just started talking to him. I had no idea who he was. And after a bit, there was a call up the corridor to, to um, say, you're on. You know, so we, I apologised to this guy and said, so I've got to go and play now. <laughs> and uh, we're setting up. I was suddenly became aware that this man was putting on a Stratocaster and standing next to Jeff in front of me and I said to someone nearby, who's this? And it was Eric Clapton. But I had no idea of me talking to him. You know, he, the beard came and went and he looked different. So that was just good fun. Listening back to I Shall Be Released, which is one of the highlights of that set, yeah. it's incredible that you, you hadn't played before. That was zero rehearsal. We, we just chose a key and went for it. <laughs> That's got sting on, hasn't it? Yeah. That was his idea at the time, the song.
You played with Frida, originally from ABBA. So how did you get the call to go up to Polar Studios? Well, it was through one of the contractors called Martin Ford, who was a friend of Phil, and he's an orchestrator. He did the conducting with some of the strings. And Phil was producing Frida. He'd been booked to go and do her at Polar Studios in um, Sweden, in Stockholm. And my name came up. And they got Daryl Sturmer from Genesis on guitar and Peter Robinson, who's an English keyboard player I knew. And we just turned up. We, we, were, we were the band. And uh, what was interesting halfway through it was that by complete chance, Earth, Wind & Fire were passing through Stockholm, part of a world tour. And Phil rang out the horns and said, do you want to come over? And then Peter Robinson stayed up all night writing horn charts. And uh, they did the horns on, the, on that album. And to complete luck, that was turning up. And then with the addition of Chester Thompson, that became the Phil Collins back a year later. It's a great lead on, because ultimately that set up to playing with Phil and on his Hello, I Must Be Going album. Yeah, I got the call to do a couple of tracks. Through These Walls, is, I think, is one of those tracks which has got a feel a little bit like it in the air tonight. Yeah, there's a little uh, percussion loop of some kind. Isn't there? I said, well, how about some fretless on this? Fretless bits. Phil doesn't tell you what to play. You just listen to your ideas and say that one. You throw in lots of different bits and pieces and melodies and rhythms and whatever, and eventually he likes what you do, and that's, that's what's on the album. And that led to touring with Phil? Yeah, we did um, all over, we did Europe. We married two tours of America, and they did 50 shows. It was good too. Thank you. 
So next we have Ringo Starr and In My Car from his uh, Old Wave album. So what was the connection to get you on to work with Ringo? I think it was George Harrison, and that had come via Ray Cooper. So it's, again, word of mouth. I'm not even sure about that. So I don't know. I just turned up, and it was um, Gary Booker on piano, which is lovely, and Chris Stainton on the Cooper and Ringo. And Joe Walsh, the producer, playing guitar. So it was Heart Eagles. It was lovely, in essence. Do you, do you know what happened with his, with his dog? Do you know about this? Ringo's Alsatian, wasn't it? He had his pet dog, Leo. It was a nice dog, but it was confused because it was both guard dog and pet. And I got to know him and stroked him and thought I was all right with him. And we did a week's work and then zipped in this park. Came back for a second week and I arrived early and it was a lovely sunny day. So I put my instrument on and went for a walk down the slope into the, into the park itself, just walking around practicing. And I became aware that behind me there was a little commotion when I turned on me. His wife Barbara was there. The daughter and this dog. And the dog saw me and I thought he was, he, he ran towards me. I thought he was coming for a stroke or something. But he, but he was coming to kill me. It really was the, the drool pouring out of his mouth. And I screamed at Barbara to get this fucking thing off, which is not how you speak to a Bond girl, is it? So it's a bit weird. And she called him off, but he did make contact. I, I just managed to swing around. And he, I've got this shirt with four teeth marks in. In the back, so I had to go off to the hospital for a tetanus shot. All I want to do is play the Ringo. <laughs> There's all this drama. It's ridiculous. So what about the song you wrote on that album, In My Car, then? How did that come about? Yes, okay. Well, halfway through the album, we've been doing lots of different songs. Joe suddenly said a sentence that everyone dreams of, but it mostly doesn't happen, which is, we've run out of material if we've got anything. Next morning, I arrived in the States and all kinds of stuff. And he played through this song I've written. And it was called Stop the Jar. He liked it. He said, can I change a few things? Writing a song with an eagle and a beagle. Of course you could change things. And uh, it became that song. Trouble is, it had nothing. <laughs> I mean, the early 80s at, at times was quite a difficult commercial period, but listening back to that album, it, it holds up. It's good. It's good stuff. It record company stuff, policy, and they didn't release it properly and didn't promote it, all that kind of stuff.
It's amazing to think that you were on Scott Walker's Climate of Hunter. Yes, yes. Scott Scott was charming and a, a very funny man, very uh, got on with everybody. But as soon as he started performing, he became very, very sort of became darker and intense. We had to record every song without ever hearing the melody or the words. Just He mentioned something about what it was, but you never hear it. In fact, nobody heard it until the album was finished. So it was a bit strange. So it was a different recording process playing with Scott Walker. Well, yeah, because we, we didn't know, we had no idea what the song was. We were just, it was just a, a trio, basically, with me, Peter Van Hook, and a guy called Brian Gascoigne on uh, keyboards, Bamba's brother. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I've read that you, um, you started working on another album with Scott that didn't happen. Yeah, it was a year or so later. That album was at the townhouse in Goldhawk Road. And then we assembled at a place in Chertsey. I forgot the name of it now. It, the same team. We thought we were still exactly the same. So it was Brian, me and Pete. And uh, for some reason, the record company decided they, they wanted to bring some extra input in. And they suddenly brought in Brian Eno and, and Daniel Lenoir, who had some success with was it U2, I think. Mm. But they were the wrong people for this project. And they sort of hovered in the background and were a bit spooky. Uh, Scott really didn't like them. And the, the album ground to a halt, which is a great pity. So it's sitting in a vault somewhere, which is sad. Grins from 
from a break in a backlash Then they'll buzz it up on a break in a backlash Motionless breaths Burn into a hip brain As a savior loads sidelines Backlit by fire on the ridges of the highest It'd be good to, to cover one of your tracks and one of the uh, those songs is So Far Away and that's from a, a live album that you released relatively recently but that song of yours has got a bit of a history, doesn't it? Well, yes, it goes back to Phil in a way. He had this prophet synthesizer that had just come on the market made these lovely big pad sounds and Peter Robinson showed me how to program it so when when we eventually came back to London I borrowed one of them then, then bought one I spent a long time playing ideas on it and uh, called in Ray Russell, who was a bank friend, and he improvised a melody straight onto it. And that's how we wrote the tune. My vision was of what it looks like from very high up in the centre of seven. His vision was of missing someone along their way back or someone away, it just works. I've lost track of the dates here. I did it on, a, on my own album called Bella Seats. But a couple of years after we did the Jeff Beckham album, I played it to him and we, we went to the towns and recorded it. Um, it never got finished and it was never released. But a month later, Gary Moore was in the studio and the engineer said, have a listen to this. And he liked it. And he rang me up and asked if he could do it again. Of course you could. Came over and showed him the chords. And then it's like a repeating thing. This being, they didn't record it, but he did play it live. And he, he has, do you know the song Empty Rooms? Mm. Which I, I played on that as well. Don't think he did it live. He used it as a prelude, just guitar and keyboard, and then that would lead into empty rooms. And then Ray and I would each done a different version of that song. But it, it's, yes, it's had a bit of a laugh.
suppose we have one of your tracks and chickens. Yes, I mentioned that um, I'd done this with my album and March two years ago. I fixed up a gig at the pizza again and I was going to record it specifically for one tune. It was when I was at Ronnie Scott at the club, we used to support a quartet, Gary Burton's quartet, who was a vibe player. And his bass player, Steve Swallow, the drummer, you know, that was always well. And they did this little tune called Chickens, which always fascinated me. It's quite hard to play. And I just stored the idea. And 50 years later, I, I thought I'd better do it, but try this. I found this double player called Chris Hayne. And we were going to play it on this gig pizza. And lockdown happened, so no gig. I, just, I was getting into, into logic and I realized we could try it this way. And four or five of the guys in the band had logic at home. So I made a template and set it round to everybody. Got it back and set it round again. So it's as if we listened to each other. And I made this track, finished it here. And I managed to send it to Steve, the composer in America, who instantly wrote back to me and said, great, it's better than my version. <laughs> so I was so thrilled by it. And that's the, the last track on the album. Everything's live except that one track. Brilliant. Definitely worth mentioning again, British Rock Guitar, before we go. You've got a, a website where we can see what you're up to mofoster.com yeah and it seems that you've you're still very active and do all sorts of projects and uh, yeah assume you've got lots to going on well i saw this lovely line from you know the author jane barry who wrote with the band he said nothing is ever work and this is something else you'd rather be doing mm. what would i retire to do lots of writing lots of vibing music i'm working on some second book or third book you just keep doing things some works most of them don't work some do keep you going <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, fabulous to hear, and it's been so fascinating hearing your story. Yeah. All right, mate. Thank you very much. All right, then. Bye-bye. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.